0: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Vand of Sacramento State University. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Spencer Sagala about his Empire and Catastrophe, Decolonization and Environmental Disaster in North Africa and Mediterranean France since 1954, out with the University of ne- Nebraska Press in 2020. Uh, I'll note that this book is available open access online, uh, meaning it, it has a free version, and we'll come back and talk about um, how to access that at the end. Professor Sagala completed his PhD at Stony Brook in 2003. In addition to Empire and Catastrophe, he has published The Moroccan Soul. French Education, Colonial Ethnography, and Muslim Resistance, 1912-1956, with the University of Nebraska Press in 2009, and he is currently Professor of History at the University of Tampa. Dr. Sagala, Spencer, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thanks, Mike, and uh, thanks for taking the time to talk today. This is great. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you because, um, you know, I, I read this book uh as before, it was coming out a few years ago, and then had the pleasure of rereading it to uh, to prep for this um, for this podcast. And it's it's really well written. <laughs> I mean, I, I find it very very engaging, and I also the descriptions of disaster were were intense, but but also very appropriate and uh, very humane. I don't know if I've actually told you that, but I, I did appreciate that uh, about your prose.
1: Well, thank you, and and I have to say uh, the anonymous reviewers at, at University of Nebraska Press were a huge help because the first draft I sent in was a hot mess um, <laughs> and way too long and too many quotations. Um, but writing about disasters and earthquakes, in particular, writing in a way that was humane and respectful to to victims, knowing that you know some of these people there nieces and nephews and children and grandchildren are are still alive. And and, uh, there are survivors still alive. um, That there were certain things I didn't put in the book um, that on the one hand were amazing sort of gripping passages, but I I decided, you know, I'm not going to put this in. This is too gruesome. Uh, It it starts to sound like violence porn. If I put this in. Yeah. Yeah. And so the sheer horror of disasters, Maybe doesn't come across in the book as much as it should. Um, well,
0: I, I think it did. I mean, I, yeah. I was, yeah, and 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 that that's such a fine line. in a lot of the historical writing we do, we, we're not we're not writing for the airport rack, um, yeah, the airport bookstore, right? And um, it's like writing about uh, these disasters, writing about uh, pandemic disease, writing about uh, colonial violence. Um, you need to express the shock and power of the historical moment yet do so respectfully. Um, so I have to say that as a resident of Northern California, uh, the subject of this book is makes me a little nervous, is potentially, potentially a little triggering. Um, we just got through uh, three weeks of catastrophic storms with floods, landslides, and collapsing cliffs. Uh, my neighborhood's regularly been featured on the news a couple blocks away that cliffs are falling into the ocean. And this comes after several years of apocalyptic fires. Uh, listeners probably saw the photograph of the, uh, San Francisco Bay area at noon during the fires where it looked like blade runner. I mean, you could barely see the sun and don't mention the E-word, uh, earthquakes. Um, I survived the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989 as an undergraduate. And, um, you know, in hindsight, uh, yes, I had post-traumatic stress from that. Um, that was, um, really, uh, terrifying, um, process and I was in Hurricane Eva in uh in Honolulu in um 82 or 83, I forget the exact year. Um just for, for the record, I prefer hurricanes to earthquakes. Um earthquakes are particularly unsettling because of the aftershocks. Um also they're so sudden. At least a hurricane you can prepare for. Um but anyway, that's uh, that, that's just my personal experience. So um, you're in Florida. Um, uh, Hurricane Ian just uh, blew through uh, there. Um, one one of the costliest disasters in in American history. Um, have you experienced many personal disasters? Was was this a a, a reason uh, that drove you towards this project? No,
1: not in particular. I mean, I live in Florida, right? So we've been through a couple hurricanes, and Irma was very destructive fairly close to where I live but we've been very fortunate um, so aside for you know some inconveniences uh, uh, we've been blessed that way in a way I got I mean, there's another connection to this uh, how I got into this topic uh, which I'll bring up later when we start to talk about my work in Casablanca um, but in a way I started thinking about disasters I got kind of roped into being on this little church disaster preparation committee when I lived in Long Island, um, this little Methodist church with this wonderful radical pastor. Um, but he was very concerned about disaster preparation for hurricanes. And I found myself spending Saturdays in this dimly lit church basement on beautiful days. And, and it was just, you know, sort of miserable. Uh, and started thinking about, I've got to find a way to connect this to my work, or else I'm going to lose my mind, right? Um, but um, considering that I live in Florida, um, we have sinkholes, we have alligators, we have hurricanes. Um, we don't have earthquakes. Don't have earthquakes. Um, no,
0: not, not yet.
1: So um, I assign. I teach a course on disasters in modern world history, uh, and I assign an essay by Sheila Hones. And one of the things she talks about. She's writing about um, late 19th century Atlantic Monthly, so sort of Boston Brahmin descriptions of disasters. Uh, And she talks about narrative distancing, how people like to talk about disasters that are far from them uh, because it makes them feel safer where they are, Hmm. uh, which is... Sort of interesting. So I live in hurricane, I live in hurricane country, but I write about earthquakes. (laughs) There you go.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that, that's actually one of the reasons I went into studying um, racism in the French colonial empire because I couldn't really handle it, doing it in American history. Um, And, you know, coming from Hawaii, I had that, that colonial understanding, but Hawaii was like literally too close to home and, the french empire was it was a an area where i could uh, i could do that that that's 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 interesting um and pedagogically so, yeah. i
1: think that's useful too i mean when you're teaching students to analyze injustice and power balances and imbalances they can develop these tools that they can eventually apply to their own society but um sometimes there's less resistance at first when you're talking about the french
0: that's really interesting. It makes me think of that. Um, Carl Nightingale has a book, um, I think it's called Segregation uh, a, a Global History of Divided Cities. And he, part of the book is a sustained comparison between Johannesburg and Chicago. And I think that when I taught it previously, some of my students might have been a little resistant to the Chicago discussions, but when they, it, it it looks at the South African case first, and then starts to show these these parallels of de facto and de jure um, uh, segregation. So, um, before we get into empire and catastrophe, uh, could you tell us a bit about how you came to your interest in your area of specialization, um, French North Africa and the the, the French Mediterranean?
1: Well, it's started very early for me but i kind of stumbled into it uh, to tell you the truth um you know i finished college i actually majored in religious studies as an undergraduate uh in a secular department uh, of religious studies um and had spent much of my undergraduate career as a kind of uh, luther studies buff uh, martin luther and the protestant reformation um, wrote my senior thesis on that, but had kind of reached the point senior year where I realized, okay, I've had enough of that. This obsession has sort of you know, uh, panned itself out um, and ended up going to uh, look for teaching jobs overseas, um, found a, a, a job fair, interviewed for one job in Warsaw, one job in Karachi and one job in Casablanca and i got the job in casablanca and i went to casablanca
0: oh um, really you, you yeah. oh I, I, saw, I mean i was going to ask you about your time in morocco and i i assumed that you you went there cuz like you you know this this deeper interest in but but just by the chance of the job market and you had an opportunity
1: exactly and oh, wow. and so i i developed this interest in north africa because i was living in north africa yeah yeah um and so i ended up spending i did three different jobs there um, but spent five out of 10 years in the nineties living in Casablanca, teaching at this school called the Casablanca American School, uh, offered the IB diploma, mostly catering to wealthy, um, uh, local, uh, Moroccans and some expatriates. And, um, you know, one of the things about living in a new environment like that is, you know, the first couple of years, you're going to all of the tourist destinations, right? So you go to Marrakesh, and you go to Fez, and you go to the Medina. Uh, and then after a certain amount of time, you start to say, okay, I just want a break. And so this is how I discovered the city of Agadir in southern Morocco. Um, so this all really predates me going back to graduate school to study history. Um, but... Agadir is a beach resort town among other things. and There's, it's there's, like, good, uh, there's good surfing of, there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <Go> um, <on. laughs> there's a very good windsurfing off of Essuera, also. Uh-huh. Uh, and Agadir is, is a bit south of that. Yeah. And so a few times I got in the habit of once in a while going down to Agadir for a long weekend or something. And there's some good karaoke bars there, or used to be at least. Um, uh, fun karaoke bars at any rate. But... Uh, and, and the, so I didn't know it then, but in certain ways, some of the ideas that got me interested in this book, I started to encounter before I even, um, you know, went back to school to study history, because I would go to, to Agadir and people would say, uh, and, and sometimes you would hear this from foreigners, but you'd also hear this from Moroccans. Oh, you're going to Agadir. Uh, Agadir is not really Morocco. Um, Agadir and this 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 phrase kept coming up. Agadir is this is a city without a soul, yeah. and I started to kind of wonder about you know what that meant. Um, and so, to make a long story short, I ended up going back to graduate school, uh, made a, a switch in fields, uh, and was lucky enough that that Jean Labovics, Herman Lebovics, uh, who worked on French colonial expositions, was he was willing to take me on. Um, and so I ended up writing a dissertation that became my first book, and it's called The Moroccan Soul, French Education, Colonial Ethnology, and it explored certain conceptions that the French had of Moroccanness and how this got worked into French educational policy and French colonial policy and carried over into nationalist discourse in certain interesting ways. Uh, but the notion of this kind of fixed identity that this is what Moroccanness consists of, um, something that was sort of immutable, and in the back of my mind is these these phrases about going to do karaoke in Agadir and people telling me that Agadir was a city without a soul, right? Uh, which ends up having something to do with the reconstruction after the earthquake, uh, but also something to do with the legacy of French colonial doctrine about what a Moroccan soul should be. Um, Doctrines that were were a kind of ill-adapted technology in certain ways. Um, that that in one of the things I explore in the first book is the ways in which these conceptions of Moroccanness inhibited French policymaking or led to missteps. Um, uh, and in certain ways, um, uh, that continues after independence. So we can get into talking about that. But but I got this connection with uh, Morocco through this kind of roundabout way. Um, and even this kind of connection to the history of Agadir, this this earthquake-stricken city and this this reconstructed city, uh, even during this time before I had started my dissertation.
0: Yeah, that that's fascinating. Um, so why colonial studies? Why um the history of uh, the French colonial empire? I mean, did you did you come at French colonialism from Moroccan history?
1: I think. I would say that I, I sort of, I really kind of started at this, at the colonial situation, right? Rather than becoming a French historian who was then interested in colonialism uh, as an aspect of French history, or as a historian of Morocco who was interested in, uh, you know, colonialism as an aspect of Moroccan history, I think I think going back to that experience of being. An American at an American school, projecting American culture, uh, and and in some way, certainly benefiting from American economic dominance in the world, that that people wanted to send their kids to a very expensive school so that they could go to to college in the states. Um, that I had been part of this kind of neo-colonial environment, uh, and and was became very aware um, through that that was built on a legacy of. French education in Morocco, uh, the French colonial experience. Um, so I think from the beginning I was a historian of the colonial encounter um, ra- rather than you know uh, a French historian first or a Moroccan historian first. I mean I could I have the language skills to be a, perhaps a real historian of France uh, if I went in that direction. I don't have the language skills to be a real historian of Morocco. But, but one of the ideas I try to break down is, is that the colonial encounter is as real as anything else, for one thing, right? Um, and, and certainly some of the figures that I focus on in this book um, are people who write in French, um, people whose native language is, um, an Amazigh language is, is either Kabil or is Tamazir. Um or uh, Teshalate and uh, you know so, so it's kind of at this point of encounter that I've always been interested in
0: things. yeah I, well, I really appreciate that because um, that's how I got into doing what I do I I was interested primarily in the colonial encounter um, and then uh, just had to find my colonial uh, my colonial empire. <laughs> Originally I was going to do Indonesia, but then I, I learned Indonesia and then found out I'd have to learn Dutch. And um, yeah, <laughs> retreated, retreated to uh, to France. Um, so, getting into the book, um, you start Empire and Catastrophe by noting that, and I quote you here: Historians have increasingly recognized the role of environmental disasters in the expansion of colonial empires and the development of colonial states. In the historiography of decolonization in North Africa, however, environmental events, no matter how catastrophic in scale, or transformative for those involved are often relegated to the background. Um, so could you say a little bit about this existing uh, historiography of natural disasters and, and colonial expansion and then Obviously, your book is about the disasters and, and decolonization. I mean, looking at this, I mean it, immediately for me, Mike Davis's late Victorian holocaust about the uh, the impacts of El Nino fluctuations in in South Asia and China and elsewhere comes to mind. But um, what what's the literature on these on these disasters and colonial expansion?
1: Well, certainly, um, Mike Davis's uh, uh, work is, is really just astonishing. But you could also go back and look at uh, the earlier period, even going back to what, what people sometimes call the old imperialism. Uh, Matthew Mulcahy has, has a book on um, hurricanes and the uh, hurricanes and society in the greater Caribbean, uh, going back to the, the early colonial encounter in the Americas and greater Caribbean stretching from what we think is the Caribbean all the way up to Virginia and um, and really explores some of the things I treat I treat in my book. I mean, in many ways, his, his book is similar to, to mine, although um, treating a very different place in a very different time period, looking both at the way that colonialism shaped how people conceptualize disasters and the way that the presence of hurricanes shaped the development of colonial society. Um, and I've often sort of thought, that an interesting sort of sequel to his book would would be titled how the south became the south you know this this, uh and how the caribbean became the caribbean uh and the environmental impact of hurricanes to be colonizing and colonized in a region uh that's subject to hurricanes ends up being very different um than being in a region in the americas that, that doesn't get struck by hurricanes Uh, But also, he explores how the conceptualization of hurricanes is shaped by the colonial experience as well. Mm -hmm. So that's a really neat one. Um, Diana Davis and Terry Burke uh, have an anthology um, uh, on environmental imaginaries in North Africa and the Middle East. And just uh, Um, sorry to
0: interrupt here, but mm -hmm. uh, Terry Burke was one of my mentors.
1: I thought so. Um,
0: I've met Diana, too, but I'm sorry. Go on. We, we
1: both have have mentors who uh, go by different names yeah. <laughs> that is on their book. So, so Edmund Burke, the third, uh, I mentioned Church, right. uh, Herman uh, Jean Labovics before. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, th- th- those looking at. Colonialism and the way local environmental factors were uh, conceptualized by colonizers and then how this in turn affects uh, colonial behavior in uh, that colonial encounter, um, that gets more into the the period of uh, modern colonialism or, or late nineteenth century colonialism in in North Africa and the Middle East. Um, Brock Cutler uh, has done some really interesting work on, on drought uh, and the role of drought in North Africa, uh, particularly in Algeria. Um, Adam Guerin as well, but but Mike Davis's work um, is just so broad in scope. Um, and uh, uh, that I, I signed that book for my students. I mean, it becomes this this kind of world history of the late 1900s, how climate fluctuations, one might say there's a couple aspects of this, right? The, the, the transformation that's caused by climate fluctuations um, and the El Nino current fluctuations in in some ways, weakening South Asian and North African and East Asian societies, making them uh, easier targets for colonial conquest. And Davis quoted somebody, I think, in the Sudan uh, saying, these missionaries, they track famine like vultures (laughs) Uh, moving into areas, offering food relief uh, in order to have an opportunity to spread Christianity uh, and then the other big aspect of Davis's book, moving beyond just for sort of formal colonialism, um, but the way that expansion of capitalist markets um, and laissez-faire uh, economic thinking, particularly in British India, most convincingly I think in British India, um, leads to this uh, exacerbation of, of famine and turns sort of what might have been a sort of survivable routine drought or series of droughts uh, into just this horrific humanitarian disaster. You know, those famous British railroads that the British love to brag that they brought to India, um, you see this become this incredible vacuum cleaner, this incredible vehicle for moving food, from sucking food away from hungry people, moving food from hungry people toward where rich people are people in in cities and export to, uh, to Britain. Um, in parallel with that, there's an essay by Alan Taylor called the hunger year, uh, which talks about 1789 on the Northern border of the United States, uh, and, and really explores similar phenomena, uh, and kind of the difference between what happens in the United States and what happens in what was still British Canada. Um, and the impact of, of this kind of laissez-faire thinking in what doesn't quite become a horrific famine, but is more of a dearth of food, um, doesn't quite lead to mass death. But this phenomenon which which capitalist trade networks lead to the, the export of food, switch to monoculture, um, and the export of food and the movement of food away from people in shortage areas toward People who have more money, uh, including export to Europe in that case, also, right? So there's a lot of neat stuff out there.
0: Yeah, so I mean, there's a, a number of examples, and and sounds like a fairly robust historiography. And then, I mean, the the purpose of your book is to re, is to address um, these disasters at the at the end of the colonial empires and that transition from colonial rule, decolonization into uh, in, into Cold War is one of the factors you take into account. So what? What what is the historical significance of disasters? Um, I mean, in other words, how how are they useful for historians? Um, what what can they teach us? So
1: there's a few ways to to think about this. Um, one way to to approach it, in some disaster studies, has focused on the idea that that disasters can be revelatory, um, that things become evident and things get written down in situations where the usual day to day business is disrupted. Right. So the disruption of a disaster leads um, to records being being made that allow us to see things that are, are hidden from us in other situations. Right. Um, there's a really interesting article. You're part of the country. Um, 1970-something uh, Harvey Mollich, sociologist uh, in Maryland Lester uh, wrote an article about these oil, this oil spill in Santa Barbara uh, in the 1960s. Um, and used it as a way to figure out how what gets printed in major newspapers and what sort of factors determine what gets printed and what doesn't because it created this situation where um, things that oil companies would have preferred never got reported on had to be reported on because this event broke through the normal day-to-day course of business and... Local papers in Santa Barbara and local environmental groups were able to observe things and started uh, essentially creating an archive, writing, publishing local articles of lots and lots of things, some of which got published in the big national newspapers and some didn't. So it allowed suddenly this comparison to take place uh, that without the disaster, you would not be able to track what doesn't get published. You only see what does get published by the big papers. Right. And. Um, so descriptions of um, these kinds of disaster situations, extraordinary situations, um, allows us to see how, in this case, how what was going on with decolonization, how decolonization worked um, in ways that, that maybe otherwise we wouldn't be able to see. But the other side of it is, and, and this is something I also stress in the book, right, we can see disasters as revelatory. But if we only look at disasters as revelatory, we're not necessarily paying attention to the impact that the environment uh, that the environment makes on political, social, cultural, human history. And in the book, especially the conclusion, I refer to this as, as the inanimate in motion, uh, because this is not just a book about earthquakes. Right. Uh, there's a dam collapse. There's a, a chemical poisoning, uh, a mass poisoning. Um But the environmental events in particular, we want to recognize that these are things that actually have their own impact on human history. That this isn't just a story of um, people manipulating the environment, um, but people's ability to uh, go about their affairs is shaped by uh, what's going on environmentally.
0: And so, I mean, it's a legitimate question though, to ask, is a disaster a thing? Uh, Um, That's what I I wanted to ask you next. I mean, like, because I, I, I've in the writing of the questions for this, I was using the term natural disasters. And I think that maybe you may might quibble with that, that there are no natural disasters.
1: Well, I mean, this is kind of a standard trope in disaster studies, right? There are no disasters. uh, There are are no natural disasters. And and it goes back to these arguments between Voltaire and Rousseau.
0: Yeah, it goes back to Rousseau, right? The the Portuguese earthquake is so bad because people build with heavy things, right?
1: Yeah, and so, like, I mean, yes, it's true. Uh, If we didn't live in houses, earthquakes wouldn't be much of a problem. Um, But the fact is we do live in houses, right? Um, It also is something that makes something like an earthquake. And, And again, this book is not just about earthquakes, but it makes earthquakes a kind of interesting case study, Because earthquakes tend to be the least anthropogenic of disasters, right? Um, Nevertheless, even in the earthquake, uh, we see that the impacts are shaped by uh, social inequities, shaped by power. Um, And the way the earthquake is understood and reacted to is shaped by ideas. Um, about colonialism and and social inequities um, in the distribution of power. Um, And so I think there's interesting comparisons that can be made to things like climate change, um, that things that we can see from the kinds of disasters that I look at um, might raise questions that are different from the ones typically applied to climate change, um, but might be fruitfully applied there as well. So what i end up describing these disasters as is um rapid onset unintended um events the rapid onset right the effects of them the event that i study uh spans decades and in some senses never stops i mean these these things aren't so long ago i'm talking about you know things in 1954 things in 1960 um the effects of these events are still going on and people are still responding to these events. Um, But they're not events that are, that are planned. Um, And so in that sense, it doesn't matter that much if it's an accidental poisoning or it's a a tectonic plate movement, or it's a a man-made dam that collapses. Um, It's different in certain ways from, what happens when somebody deliberately drops a bomb on a city, for example. Right. Um, but the other aspect of this is, you know, our disasters the thing. Um, how are disasters different from other kinds of violence that produces results that are the product of social inequities? Um, and, and people have written about this. And it's not necessarily right. I mean, that the trauma... And, and violence and oppression caused deliberately by human beings, um, in some ways, is always the real cause of the suffering, uh, some of the suffering, at least, th- that happens from these kinds of unintended disasters. But the other aspect of it is that disaster is a category in the thinking of the people we're studying, um, and that... Often, particularly in this case with decolonization, people are grappling with the question of what is the relationship between these things that are happening that I classify as, as either a natural disaster or, in the case of the dam collapse or the poisoning, as an accident. And this other event that is a political event that um, is also creating upheaval uh, where I am. Um and people understanding these two things in relationship to each other. And that essentially is what I explore in the book.
0: Right. And so you, you explore this with, um, two earthquakes, one in Algeria in 54, um, uh, the other in Morocco in, uh, 1960. And then, um, uh, the, a, a dam collapse in, in Frasius in 59. And then, a um, uh, poisoning is uh, a mass poisoning case in, in 1959 in Morocco so um after your introduction uh with chapter 2 you get into um Algeria in 1954 and you make the point that for for the people of uh, was it Orléansville, um, 1954 is re- remembered as the earthquake, not necessarily the start of the Algerian war. So, so tell us about this earthquake in in um, in Algeria, in 1954, that that is that we know now on the eve of this this horrific war.
1: So, yeah, this earthquake strikes um, Algeria and it has its epicenter in this area called the Chelif Valley, um, and. The city of Orléans, this French-built city, uh, is uh, quite near to the epicenter, um, and it's occurring at this time where you know, the Algerian War, as we, as we know it, or as it's traditionally sort of considered to have begun, hasn't quite yet begun. Um, but discontent with the French and, and resistance uh, against the French um, has, been, in fact, been going on since 1945, on and off. And so the attribution of saying, oh, well, the Algerian War starts October 31st, 1954, is a little bit of an ex post facto, you know, uh, cutoff. So, but this is is just before the Algerian War starts. Um, And it's this devastating earthquake um, in this area that strikes both this city, um, but also just devastates people in rural villages in very remote areas, uh, without paved roads, um, inaccessible by car, um, uh, and just causes immense destruction, um, a large amount of death, but also immense destruction of housing. Right. So one of the questions that one of the things about all these disasters that I study is they affected and they became sort of central to arguments about either what it means to be decolonized or in the case of the 1954 earthquake in Algeria, um, what does it mean to say that Algeria must still be French, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is this question of, well, how will the French state respond? um and the all kinds of arguments start to break out among political groups and in the press um, about inequities in aid distribution um and, and so this creates an opportunity for grievances about inequities in Algerian society uh to be aired but it's not ju- here's a case where it's not just a, a revelation of things that were already there this destruction ups the ante for the French. Uh, in order for them to make the argument that France is, is creating progress in Algeria, uh, that France believes that Algerians are its responsibility, suddenly this has become much more expensive, right? Um, and much more difficult to manage. And the French um, failure to kind of live up to those promises becomes much more evident right
0: and um, and ju- just to, just to interrupt yeah. here for for listeners who may not be uh, um familiar with some of the details of the french colonial empire and of, of french rule in algeria the three northern départements are technically french territory even though not everyone living there is recognized as a French citizen, right? It's the the pied noir, the the white settlers who get full citizenship, and then this qualified, very very <laughs> qualified is very uh <laughs> understated term, but uh, a lesser legal representation for what ninety percent of the population, the um, the Algerian Arab and Berber uh, population. So that 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 it being French territory makes it a little different than a disaster. Uh, I mean, it being a French département makes it a little different than it being a disaster in, say, Laos or Cambodia, right?
1: You know, and one comparison uh, that I make with my students is I say, you know, uh, these three Algerian territories have been annexed to France just as Hawaii is a state of the United States,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, the difference is that the Algerian Berber speaking, you know, Kabyle speaking and Arabic speaking population was the vast majority of the population there. Right. Right. Um, uh, they outnumbered probably eight to one, uh, the white settler population, descendants of settlers. Um, but, yeah, it was was legally speaking uh, French territory. So then the question becomes the French assert that Muslim Algerians, therefore, are um, French citizens of a sort. Right. And it's not until well into the Algerian war that something close to equal citizenship is finally actually legislated uh, that applies to Algeria. So there is a, you know, not a not a a secretly second class citizenship, but there is an official legally entrenched second class citizens citizenship status of Muslim Algerians uh, in that territory. Um, And and in the face of all this suffering and this disaster, um, what is going to, you know, there's this question of, 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 of how is that Frenchness of Algeria going to be asserted? And it also provides this opportunity um, and a kind of turning point for certain people um, to stand up and say, this exposes the emptiness of the French arguments of colonialism. Why are there no roads in these villages? Why are there no hospitals here? Uh, and the relief effort um, officially doesn't make distinctions based on uh, nationality or religion or, or, or ethnic origin, um, but the aid provided for people living in um, certain kinds of structures was different for the than the aid for people living in. Uh, uh, things, as the French say, en deux, uh you know, made out of wood or stone in cities and towns—the kinds of habitations that most that the French all lived in—reconstruction um, aid for those houses was very different um, for people than for people living in the huts, who were basically um, given a, a very tiny amount of money uh, and some wooden poles and told you have to rebuild your own your own structure. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so, so surprise, surprise, the, the, the inequalities of reconstruction and relief aid mirror the racial inequalities of uh, the colonial encounter?
1: Exactly, of course, yeah. right? So, so that in some sense is no surprise, right? Um, so one of the things I look at in this chapter is what happens to some of these more, uh, more collaborationist, uh, more elite uh, Muslim Algerians? Um, and on the one hand, there, there are, is a handful of Muslim Algerians who have benefited from certain French reforms, um, and have risen up to become quite wealthy and, and fairly influent, influential, Uh, in, in, this particular case, I look at this, uh, uh, one landowner, Abdelkader Saia, who's part, essentially part of the French administration. Um, these are folks who, have privileges akin to what white French settlers and their descendants have, um, and there are different opposition groups that see see the problem differently. Is the problem um, a problem of French domination over Algerians, or is the problem a capitalist problem of the landowner class or the or the wealthy class, as the leftist groups look at it, that people like Abdelkader saida these these wealthy collaborationists they are part of the capitalist class. And therefore there's not a French versus Algerian division. Uh, this is a class conflict, right? I bookend the chapter with the story of this young Muslim doctor, uh, Kabil speaking in origin, uh, but French educated. Um, I start off the chapter with, uh, his account of when he's driving his car, Going to his first job after finishing his uh, internship, his residency, essentially, um, hearing about the earthquake um, and turning the car around to go back and be part of the aid response in Orléansville. Um, and, and I start the chapter with that. And here's somebody who has benefited from French education. Uh, he's become a doctor. Uh, he describes himself as being someone who had been a supporter of Ferhat Abbas. Who, in the earlier part of his career, uh, had said, Look, we don't need independence. Algeria has never been a nation. What we need is real equality, real French citizenship. Um, and at a certain point, we need autonomy, but we're not a nation. We don't need independence. So, so this was kind of his, his political mindset. Um, and I finished the chapter uh, with an account of him coming out of the hospital to take a break and walking past a tent where French officers uh, are distributing aid. And there's some kind of scuffle. There's uh, Something's going on at the tent. um, And they're shouting. And one of the French officers uh, uh, pushes the crowd away and says, uh, they're all thieves, these Arabs. And in his memoirs, this Muslim Algerian doctor um, at writing as a much older man describes this as a kind of turning point, right? Um, that he becomes very angry. He becomes incensed um, at the, uh, the French officer and says, suddenly I realized that I had to put aside my, my pride in being addressed as, you know, as, as, as monsieur, um, that I was going to stand up for the Arabs, all the Arabs, uh, that I was their representative. Um, and it gets a little more complicated than that. Um, but, uh, Neil McMaster has done some writing on this too. His most recent book about Algeria also talks about, um, the, the, the Shaley Valley earthquake, um, and the way in which, uh, suffering after the earthquake and the inequities of aid, uh, Galvanizes certain people toward uh, the nationalist cause, uh, and that is quite possibly the case uh, in this case of this young doctor that I described. Um, yeah. But these are some of the things I explore in that chapter.
0: And then, then, uh, somewhat surprisingly, the next chapter takes us to France, takes us to Fréjus. In uh, is Fréjus in the Côte d'Azur? Uh, in... Yes. Yeah. yeah no. It's in, in, in you know, it's a beautiful part of. Stuff. Right, the bar, um, uh, and you look at this flood in 1959. Um, so that was uh, caused by a dam breaking. So, what's the significance of this event for the story of decolonization?
1: So, right, because this is in France. Um, uh, this dam breaks. It was uh, a brand new dam. Really, they had just they built after World War II. Um, very large, um, and. Prejuice is this, uh, had been a military town and uh, Gregory Mann uh, wrote this article, really wonderful article, uh, about how this particular town had this
0: deep connection with the, the French
1: colonial endeavor,
0: um, and, and the, the French the French Foreign Legion has has something in there, correct? Because yeah when in the nineties when uh, I was in the archives uh, in X with Eric Jennings and David Del Testa, uh David always loved a good field trip and he went out to go see the maybe it's is it the old uh is it the, the Legionnaire's retirement home or something? There's some something along that those lines. That would make I'll, sense. It was certainly Because yeah. there were
1: hospitals good, there. Uh it had been used um both as an embarkation point for soldiers going to the colonies, um, but also for uh, a kind of wintering place for soldiers from the colonies during the world wars uh-huh. um, because it was in the south of France uh, and military hospitals there. So it, it was very much part of the, uh, the militarization of uh, w- North and West Africa. Yeah. So this dam breaks. And floods the town. Uh, and I start off with this little anecdote of of this fisherman's son, uh, Christian Hughes, another another person writing a memoir much later. So there's issues of memory that I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and they hear this crashing noise. And their first thought is this the FLN they're invading. Um, and it's not the FLN. Right. It's a flood. The dam has broken. Um but it's one of the things they talk about that, that the events of the time are, and the, the disruptions of decolonization and the, and the violence of decolonization is is so much on people's mind that every event, every environmental event is is, is connected in certain ways, um, both measurable and and sort of merely imagined uh, um through this experience of decolonization and vice versa. Right.
0: Can can, Um, can, can I, can I interrupt and tell you a personal anecdote that just, that just popped into my mind that like, that makes this connection. When the Loma Prieta earthquake hit in 1989, I was in a Latin American studies class at UC Santa Cruz and, um, it was a guest speaker um, that was, it, w- it wasn't Dilma Rousseff, but it was um, a high-ranking woman in the PT, the um, the uh, Lula's party, the um, the Brazilian opposition. And we had just been studying the bombing of the, um, in Nicaragua, the La Pensa bombing. And when the earthquake hit, she was speaking and I thought we were getting bombed. Um, <laughs> and so I, I immediately thought this political narrative and it, it is, it is, when I when I read that uh that opening that chapter I had I recognized that when just as you were speaking now I really felt that <laughs> so,
1: yeah yeah no I I I, I could uh, tell some stories like that too yeah because um, this, this is
0: the nature of disasters they they come out of the blue and and we're struggling to put meaning onto them and so yeah when this disaster strikes in Frasius, they they think it's the FLN they think it's the war the war has come home right
1: um. Yeah, it makes me think of in, in 1960 when Agadir, Morocco, is struck by an earthquake. Um, there are a lot of questions. This has something to do with the French dropping the bomb in the Algeria, in Algeria, uh-huh. um, yeah. uh, the <laughs> atomic testing. Uh, and it turns out it did not. But uh, at the time, it's a reasonable thing. And it was also, in a sense, it was a reasonable thing to suspect that um, the that the FLN could have something to do with with an attack on France. There there were attacks on French targets. Um, There were, in fact, uh, of course, they couldn't have known this at the time, but there were discussions of possibly targeting dams. Um, um, But mostly what that chapter deals with is the Algerian immigrant community uh, in Fringes. Now, that community is directly connected to the Orléansville earthquake of 1954, um, that this, these were two places that had a migration connection. Um, and there were survivors of the Orleanville earthquake who were in Frejus, um, uh, or survivors of, the, uh, for, for, particularly from Wedfada, this, this more rural town um, in the Shalik Valley in Algeria, Um, there had been this migration connection. So some of the same uh, people, unfortunately, are involved. Uh, But then I look at the the inequities of aid distribution um, to the Algerian immigrant community there. Um, And also how French representations of Algerians in this town change over time because... The chronology matters here because, okay, this dam collapse occurs in, in 1959. Um, so this is now several years into the Algerian War. Um, and so the Algerian War has become a catastrophe for France. Um, one French response to this, an official kind of French response to this, and Todd Shepard has written about this, and Amelia Lyons, um, ha- had been an attempt to undercut the nationalist arguments of the FLN and the arguments that the French were, um, you know, neglecting the Algerians, had it created the poverty of the Algerians? Well, to finally do what Ferhat Abbas had been asking for in some sense since the 1930s, which is to say, well, we're going to provide real French citizenship. We're going to try to provide real political equality. And more than that, actively engage in economic policies that promote the betterment of muslim algerians too little too late right you might say but that's going on at the national level like that's national policy in this particular french municipality um the political leaders in power in 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 the city in the mayor's office in the city council uh, there had, had recently been a kind of political upheaval. De Gaulle had returned to power in France. Uh, and what that meant locally was that the the Socialist Party that had built the dam was no longer in power. So they become a kind of target for blame uh, for the dam collapse. Um, it's not until much later that there start to be, I don't want to say... Fantasies, but but uh, there there are certain historiographies suggesting Algerian sabotage caused the dam collapse that are not credible, uh, but that are very interesting in this this if we're interested in how people mentally try to connect these phenomena of the disasters with decolonization. Um, but but politically at the local level, it is very clear that this national policy of um, trying to th- promote the line that Algerians really are French. That's not accepted at the local government level. Um, And it is actively counteracted that Algerians are very clearly treated as second-class citizens in this French town um, in terms of aid distribution. The public face they put on it um, is a little different and a little more in accord with the national propaganda effort. You might say after Algerian independence, one of the things I see in memoirs and in historical and fictional and semi-fictional accounts is that once Algeria becomes independent, Algerians, there no longer needs to be an argument to say that, oh, the the French felt that we all were in this together, uh, we had good relations, and all of a sudden, much more negative descriptions of, of Algerians during these events, start to come out. Um, so that that in 1959, 1960, with the Algerian War still going on and the French government still engaged in this effort to try to win the hearts and minds of Muslim Algerians away from the FLN, uh, despite all the torture and the bombings and the Nepal and everything else, um, that there, there was an effort to put this uh, public image out of Solidarity between the French and Algerians in disaster response. When Algeria becomes independent and the French citizenship, as Todd Shepard says, the French citizenship gets erased of all these Muslim Algerians, French citizens living in France are suddenly not French citizens anymore. Um, then French writers uh, are in some ways liberated from um, to talk about how different the Algerians are and how they are not like us and uh, and, and all that comes out. So um, the way that people understand d- disasters changes as that political situation changes. And I shouldn't say as they understand yeah. disasters, what they feel comfortable saying about what they believe. What, yeah. yeah.
0: The comfort was what's politically possible to say yeah. acceptable. Yeah. So then, then you take us to Morocco and um most of the rest, I guess, the rest of the book is is centered in Morocco. Uh, chapter four is about this um, uh, poisoning disaster um, that that's linked to the United States. So you start to fold this history of decolonization into the larger context of the Cold War. So what uh, what was the case? The, this poisoning case and of mass poisoning in 1959 in Morocco.
1: Uh, well, so basically, what happened was. Um, the, there were American air bases, uh, strategic air command, nuclear bomber bases, um, in Morocco, um, that were a, a legacy of colonialism in the sense that it was the French government that had made a treaty with the Americans, allowing them to develop these bases after World War II. Um, and, but the Americans were quite aware that there was pressure from Moroccan nationalists and from the Moroccan government. Morocco, the, uh, this happens in also in 1959, but Morocco is already independent at this point. Uh, it had always been a protectorate. They had kept their sultan, whose title is now becomes king at independence. Um, and the Americans are aware that there is nationalist pressure to get all foreign bases, including French and American bases, evacuated. Um, so the Americans are starting to downsize a little bit, uh, and they're selling surplus goods. It's a little unclear whether the sale of of these surplus goods is directly related to these political concerns. But anyway, they sell a bunch of lots of barrels of jet engine lubricating oil. Uh, And it contains um, uh, substances that then get, get, it gets bought by a merchant and resold to a number of figures who seem to have been posing as motor, you know, uh, motor vehicle garage operators, um, uh, mechanic repair, uh, operators, uh, but then took this jet engine lubricating oil and used it to adulterate olive oil and vegetable oil and which was then sold. So this creates mass paralysis. Um, it's not a mass death, mass death incident, um, but it causes damage to neurons Causes partial paralysis, and, uh, and so it, so hits, it hits the walk. It hits,
0: yeah, it hits the communities quickly. Like it goes from uh, one or two cases, then a few dozen to to hundreds and, and thousands in the space of a week or so. Yeah, I mean, it, so your description was really, of the sudden onslaught. Yeah,
1: yeah, it happens quite quickly. Uh, I mean, not as quickly as an earthquake, but it but it spreads pretty yeah. fast because. Um, Uh, this oil gets distributed. It's real cheap. It's kind of nasty. People comment that it didn't seem good, but it was cheap. And um, so it hits the poorer communities um, uh, the worst. Um, But this chapter starts to deal with um, international relations. And and there's about a a chapter and a half in in the book, which are kind of diplomatic history involving the Americans. Um, And this fundamental question of, uh, what does it mean to decolonize uh, and what will Moroccan decolonization mean uh, and what is going to be the role of foreign basis uh, there? Um, and how is uh, how is disaster aid used both by the French and by the Americans uh, to try to address this question of um, maintaining their influence in the region, even though Morocco is independent uh, and, and a real concern I mean the Ameri- for the Americans, this is obviously um, uh, a diplomatic uh, problem uh, because this, these American air bases uh, were the origins of this this poisonous substance uh, that causes uh, you know, ten thousand people to lose their ability to to work in most cases to walk or at least to walk without without crutches. Um, It causes uh, loss of use of the the hands. Um, So it's a kind of economic disaster. Um, And one of the things that I explore is uh, American foreign policy and and disaster relief policy as a way that the Americans seek to uh, promote their influence in North Africa uh, and compete with the sort of fear of the Soviet Union. Um, extending its influence. And this is obviously a, 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 a black mark on the American record in Morocco, right? Um, um, so that's kind of the heart of, of that particular chapter.
0: So, uh, chapter six um, starts this discussion of uh, the earthquake in Agadir in Morocco. And um, really, six, seven, in uh, chapter, f- well, f- excuse me, chapter five takes us to Agadir, and five, six, and, and seven really are about the, um, the impact of this earthquake, which led to what you noted was uh, known as the city without a soul. So could you talk about um, uh, your discussion of the Agadir earthquake?
1: So, and that discussion even begins at the end of the oil poisoning mm-hmm. chapter, um, because the Americans are very hesitant uh, in providing disaster aid or Red Cross assistance um to treat the victims of the paralysis of that originated with the substance from American military bases, because that then raises the profile of those military bases in a negative way. But once the earthquake strikes Agadir, then this is a great public relations opportunity for Americans to look heroic. Um, and then that takes that is so such a large event that then allows American uh, aid to go forward regarding the oil poisoning. So, I mean, one of the things about this book is that each chapter really is quite different um, Mm -hmm. and addresses fundamentally, you know, the same questions of how did these environmental events affect people grappling with uh, uh, trying to assert different answers to the question of will we decolonize, you know, um, uh, what does it mean to decolonize? Who will gain from this process and who will lose from this process? But each chapter is very different. Um, so one of the nice and, things and, and, about it being available. Excuse,
0: excuse me, but, but also decolonization in the context of the Cold War, which is a, a, a new form of imperialism, right? So right. there may be political decolonization, but you're, you're getting spun into this new American imperial system.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And exactly how much the Americans will be involved. Uh, um, One thing you see certainly in the the couple of chapters that deal with diplomatic history is the Moroccans are fairly successful in playing the French, the Americans off against each other uh, and playing the Soviet card uh, as well. Um, So this is certainly there's neocolonialism going on here, uh, but the Moroccan state is is pretty successful in asserting itself. And also one of the things I explore in the uh, Agadir chapters is the ability of the Moroccan monarchy to take advantage of these disasters, to assert its authority, to push aside the civilian government, um, and to project itself as the sort of sole protector of the Moroccan people. Um, uh, so... This isn't a straightforward story of, of colonial and neocolonial oppressors. Um, it's also about the rise of this authoritarian uh, uh government using disaster response um as as an opportunity. Um so one of the nice things about about the book being available, open access, um on uh OAPEN, which is open access for European Networks, O-A-P-E-N dot org. Um is well, it's free. So, so people who want to assign, you know, want students to read it. If you're interested in diplomatic history or the Americans in the Cold War, um, you can access those single chapters on JSTOR, or the whole book free on uh, OAPEN, however you pronounce that. Um, and because uh, um, there are certainly people who have no interest in the Algeria question, but are interested in the Americans in Morocco. Uh, And there's people who are interested in urban planning, which is something I deal with a lot in uh, uh, the Agadir, the second Agadir chapter, Um, because the Agadir chapters, uh, you know, the tail end of chapter four deals with how the calculus of disaster diplomacy and disaster aid uh, and the Cold War is altered by this new disaster, this earthquake that occurs in Agadir, the southern city on, on the Atlantic coast of Morocco. Um, then the next chapter looks at, in many ways, how the Agadir earthquake disrupted decolonization itself, because mm-hmm. it dis- it does so much damage to the city of Agadir uh, that there is a brief period of time where French troops, whose base was outside of the city and was, was fairly untouched, French troops are once again moving through the, through the city with authority, um are involved in decisions uh in the first half of the chapter deals largely with decisions about what to do with dead bodies mm-hmm. um where will the bodies be buried um later on which bodies will be dug up and which bodies will be left in the ground um and what is the role of of frenchness and what is the role of Moroccanness, and the french state and the moroccan state um in negotiating what it means to say that, that this is now an independent country um, and this is no longer a French protectorate, um, but that nevertheless, the Moroccan state needs French aid. And at this point, the French themselves are overwhelmed with trying to meet the needs of French survivors uh, in this city. Um, and then the second half of that chapter deals with um, very explicitly struggles, uh, between different French American and Moroccan visions of exactly what the American role will be in reconstructing the city, who is going to be the leading cultural and what they call technical, uh, uh, assistance provider, uh, for this newly independent nation. Uh, and they engage in, uh, what people called at the time, the battle of the plans, um, uh, between, you know, French planners, Moroccan planners working quite closely with French planners. Um, and um, But the Moroccan monarchy bringing in uh, an American planner, but that doesn't pan out. Uh, and finally settling on on a vision for Agadir. And that brings up the, the city without a soul question. Yeah. Right. Um, the monarchy's position initially was that this was an opportunity to create a new modern Morocco uh, to break from tradition. The French had fetishized uh, Moroccan architecture uh, in a, a, what has sometimes been termed a kind of apartheid policy. Although there's some problems with that that kind of description. Um, had... That's
0: a, that's Janet abu gold's classic book, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, I, I think it's and fair to say the French
0: lot... made an attempt yeah. to
1: create a kind of apartheid that would separate modern French cities from traditional Moroccan cities.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, I think she's accurate in saying that was the French vision. Um, What actually happens is somewhat more complicated. Um, But the Moroccan monarchy uh, takes the position that they want to break from that. They want to bring in uh, either a French or an American planner um, to engage in the construction of a city that will reflect Morocco's break from the past. And so they do. Um, uh, Although it ends up becoming, being a plan produced largely by French and Moroccan planners working for the Moroccan government. But it's a very modernist sort of mid-century modernism uh, 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 architecture, uh, functional urban planning. Uh, So people go to Agadir today and it's a beach resort that looks like something you might find in in Southern Europe, um, uh, very modernist architecture. And it is later often denounced as being not really Moroccan, not having a soul. Well, there's a political background to that. The monarchy's position changes. There's riots in the 1960s. Uh, the monarchy blames the Moroccan left. They blame the university professors. Um, and there is, uh, uh, Annie Wainscott talks about this a little bit, or quite quite a lot. Yeah, uh, There is an attempt um, of the Moroccan monarchy to associate itself with tradition and Islam. So it's this kind of about face in royal policy on um, what it means to be Moroccan and what a Moroccan city should look like. Uh, and so after promoting this reconstruction of Agadir as a... Um, a break both from Moroccan tradition and therefore from French colonialism. Now, uh, Agadir is portrayed as something un-Moroccan, uh, you know, which, which is the connection between this book and my first book on Moroccan education, all this anxiety about things that were not Moroccan being expressed by Moroccans. Um, and the other political element that becomes involved here is is that this is a Berber city? This is a, a, a Tassilahit. I'm not sure I ever pronounced that right, but um, uh, this is a, a, an Amazigh city uh, and, and population uh, to to a great extent. And for Arabic-speaking Moroccans to to assert now that Agadir is a city without a soul brings in a kind of um, uh, question about well is this is this a statement about about Berberness um that has been addressed very
0: explicitly
1: and, and I make the argument that we have to understand this this constant repetition you see it in 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 every you know master's thesis not every but lots of master's thesis um uh, newspaper articles Mar- agadir as a city without a soul we have to understand this as a kind of legacy of this French colonial notion that Morocco can only be certain things and Moroccans should only live in certain kinds of cities, um, but also also as a reflection of uh, the monarchy's policies in promoting certain ideas of moroccan as well.
0: That's, that's really interesting. It makes me think of um, Penny Edwards' book on... Um, uh, colonial Cambodia, Cambodge, uh, the cultivation of a nation in the way in which uh, French Orientalists uh, tried to establish a Cambodian-ness um, as, as, as a colonial policy to separate them from ties and so forth and the, the way that – then gets played out and, and feeds into Khmer Rouge uh, ideology in some very um, surprising and obviously unfortunate ways. Um, so you've been really uh, generous with your time, but I've got uh, two more questions before, before I let you go. These are the traditional new books, uh, debriefing questions. Um, first, can you suggest two books for the audience? Well, for
1: people who are interested in the, the cold war and diplomatic history chapters, uh, two chapters like that I'm really looking forward to Julia Irwin's new book uh, which is coming out very soon uh, Catastrophic Diplomacy uh, U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance in the American Century Um, If you're interested in in earthquakes um, but maybe in uh, the earlier time period another book which is very much like this one in some ways I think I, I modeled this book uh, on his, uh, Charles Walker's Shaky Colonialism, which is about the the Lima, Peru earthquake tsunami in 1746. Um, uh, Terrible title, I have to say, Shaky Colonialism, uh, but wonderful book. Um, And the cover art is is even worse. uh, um, Pictures of, of the letters of the title falling down like bricks, like a building collapsing. But a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, that explores race and colonialism and um, urban uh, development in, you know, 18th century Latin America. Um, uh, some of the kind of themes that my book is about, um, uh, he deals with in, in such a different setting. If anyone's looking for a, a maybe something to assign to freshmen, uh, and you're interested in that time period. Um, Nick Schrady is a journalist who wrote a book on the Lisbon earthquake of 1755 called The Last Day. Uh, it doesn't have footnotes except where there's a quotation, but it's an easy read. And it deals with these, some of these political and social issues. It's really quite good.
0: Fantastic. Um, and, you know, in defense of uh, Chuck Walker's great work, um, you can't judge a book by its cover.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely.
0: Um,
1: Sorry, and, and, I mean, covers aren't <laughs> always up to authors, right? So I, I apologize uh, to the folks at the press there uh, more than to Charles Walker. But.
0: Um, and then um, finally, what are you working on now? And uh, what can we hope to see from you next? So I'm not
1: quite sure where the future will take me, um, but... I've really been fascinated to continue the sort of book recommendations. Um, David Stenner's book, Globalizing Morocco, and Jeffrey Burns' book, um, uh, Mecca of Revolution, talking about Algeria, yeah. are both focusing on how nationalist movements recruited and developed networks of foreign support uh, hmm. in, in, in Europe and in the United States, Um, And so I've got a little side project, whether it ever becomes a book or just an article, I don't know. Uh, I'm looking at um, this famous British nature writer called named Gavin Maxwell. Um, He's a little bit like George Jarrell, who people may know from the the Amazon series. Um, But he was this he, he became really famous in the 1960s, writing this super popular book about raising otters on the coast of Scotland. But he also wrote this book called Lords of the Atlas um, and spent time in Morocco. Um, he's a very sort of eccentric writer. And the Lords of the Atlas is, is not necessarily a book that historians cite authoritatively anymore, um, but it was quite influential in certain ways at a time. And somehow, this aristocratic um, sort of adventurer travel nature writer ends up getting connected to a network of people, including the the British journalist, Margaret Pope, who connect him to Moroccan and Algerian nationalists. Uh, And at a certain point, he goes on what he at least describes as a spy mission to Algiers for the FLN. Really? Um, So (laughs) I'm exploring this case as a kind of extension of the kind of work that Stenner and Byrne have done of how exactly do um, do these Moroccan and, and Algerian uh, uh, nationalist networks extend to bring in influential uh, Europeans who otherwise come from this culture of colonialism? And I'm also kind of looking at how this particular person's kind of culture of colonial adventurism. His otters, by the way, come from Iraq and West Africa. Uh, he wrote, uh, he, you know, he 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 is this aristocratic kind of playboy and the British empire it was his playground. And yet he becomes this, this um, uh, North African, you know, this FLN spy, maybe sort of. Um, so I, I'm interested in this overlap between colonial adventurism culture and adventures in decolonization. So that's kind of one side project. Um, I think there's something still to be written to about Concepts of globality uh, emerging from the thinking about earthquakes, um, and so that may be a, a, a bigger hurdle. Um, there's so much in my book, I think that I'm hoping somebody else will follow up on. To uh, Nebraska was wonderful in letting me keep my footnotes, <laughs> um, and they made a you know beautiful hardcover edition, and the paperback is coming out in. In May. But, um, one of the nice things about the free digital edition, not the PDF, but the the EPUB version for Kindle or iBooks is it makes it so easy. You click on the footnote, you read the footnote, you click back and you go back to where you were to toggle yeah. back and forth between the text and the footnote. Um, but they let me keep these footnotes where, where there was just stuff that like, I couldn't explore in the book. Somebody ought to work on this. Um, they, they let me keep like a half page footnote, which publishers never let you do anymore. Uh, yeah, and it, yeah. it's there in the print book, but it's so easy to access through the free EPUB. Um, I tried to leave as many breadcrumbs as possible uh, for graduate students looking for things to work on because um, there's so just so much unexplored there. Um, and there's, there's, there's certainly in every chapter of the book, there's stuff that really needs to be explored that somebody ought to work on in some cases, maybe I'm not the person to do it. Um, is, is there's, um, the, the, the gendering of these disasters needs treatment. Uh, the Morocco oil poisoning needs somebody to do a uh, history who can, can really do, um, uh, the oral archive, uh, mm-hmm. there, uh, in Arabic and, and, uh, uh, in, and, in uh, Amazir languages, uh, cause it happens all over Morocco. Um, there's a lot of stuff to work on there, which, which bits of that I do. I'm uh, not exactly sure yet.
0: Yeah. Well, hopefully there'll be some aftershocks uh, to your work. Sorry. <laughs> oh. I, I kept, I kept the puns to a minimum, yeah. um, but by the way, um, uh, and another, it's in a different field, anthropology, but the earthquake book that I really love is Edward Simpson's, the political biography of an earthquake aftermath and amnesia in Gujarat, India. And, uh, by chance, I, um, I got to, I traveled with him a few years ago in in India and um got to talk to him about it and it's such a fantastic book and and it's really relevant today cuz he didn't know it at the time but he was looking at part of Modi's rise to power in Indian politics and the way he used that earthquake. So um hey so just one more time can you could you explain to us how um we can access the free copy? Um
1: so it's there- available in a few different places um but to access the the book as one file, um, mm-hmm. it's open access for European networks, O-A-P-E-N.org, OAPEN.org. Uh, so there's a PDF version there. You can click and download the the, the PDF file. There's an EPUB version, which you can, you download to your device and then you can share it to Kindle, at least on your phone, you can share it to Kindle. How you do it on a laptop, I don't know. Um Uh, but also works in iBooks or any, any e-reader. That's the one that lets you toggle from the footnotes back to the text. Um, But it's also in JSTOR, It's in project muse. The only thing about those is the footnotes are in one file as if it's a separate chapter and the chapter itself is in a different file, Um, but it's all there. So it's in a few different places. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, And I, I, you know, for listeners, I, I think the book as a whole um, sections of the book could uh, be really great for a variety of different classes. And as, as you said, Spencer, it, the book works in several different registers and different chapters have different feels. And so I think it is it, extremely useful and and engaging book. Um, Spencer Sagala, thank you so much for chatting with me.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure.
0: So this has been a conversation with Dr. Spencer Sagala of the University of Tampa about his Empire and Catastrophe, Decolonization, and Environmental Disaster in North Africa and Mediterranean France since 1945, out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2020. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.